constant growing of things unknown, drawing from the endless reaches of time. J- Jason. Jason. Yes. Yeah. Jason. Synesthesia to me is uh, it's a true definition of the mixing of the senses. What makes synesthesia exciting? It takes us all the way from just the mingling of the senses, all the way to metaphors or even transcending the senses, where you are, are no longer constrained by the tyranny of individual sense impressions. Jason, what are you talking about? <laughs> Synesthesia, a movie podcast featuring Jason Mikhilich and Jim Hickox, begins now. Pull the We completely that. abandoned the topic. We'll come back. We'll to just that have someday. to do a different episode on that. This yeah. focus. Yeah. yeah. I think this is just the. I think this is the getting to know you episode. This is the just a big mess. You're like, no, we're just gonna. <laughs> yeah. Chitty chat. We're just a couple of <laughs> gonna chatties. shit on everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wish we could do. I don't. There's no auditory version, but you know, in comics, they'll be like. In the middle of someone's sentence, there'll be an asterisk, and then you look down on the bottom, and it'll be like, issue 12. I wish we had a way to do that. Well, you can just drop in a little, like, bring sound, and then have my voice, or maybe just somebody else's voice. Like, I can get, I have a friend who's a voice actor, I can maybe get him to come in and do some things, it'll go, bring. What Jim is referring to is from episode 312. I love that. So yeah, it just <laughs> depends on how much time I'm actually going to spend editing these things. Oh right, I'm gonna have to edit this one because we're almost at an hour and a half. Oh damn, we're so rambly. I know, I know. <laughs> but on the other hand, I do work think if people that, really like us, Jason. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> turn this up because it looks like my voice is recording too quietly and i'm just going to live with the background noise yeah i mean the background noise will be there at the same relative volume to you no matter what right it's just yeah i'm just sitting in my chair and my chair clanks oh i hear it so i'll just have a clanky chair yeah no it's fine we'll just put um if we'll put the uh the we'll put like drumming sounds we'll put aggressive uh, or like the, the moaning chains from the beginning of the Monster Mash we'll just put on a loop in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like a, what is it, Akira that's all Gamelon music? It would be like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the constant crescendo and thrum of Gamelon. <laughs> I could just, yeah, we could just put the Akira soundtrack or or just the animal collective sounds where they sample the Akira soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's better because then um, then there are two groups of people that could sue us. That's not just Yeah. Me. I want to expand that out. Yeah. Let's not just be potentially sued by people in Japan who will never hear this. Let's no, no, also no. bring in people from the North American continent who will never hear this. Yeah. <laughs> I would be sh- shocked could if potentially like, hear it. If, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I wouldn't put this on like, split tooth, so. Panda Bear or someone is like, oh, I really like listening to one episode of every 
<laughs> Every podcast that has less than 400 listens. I also feel like Panda Bear wouldn't sue us, though. Amy Terra yeah. yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know why I just made that up about both of them. No, I think that's... I think I trust your uh, your characterizations of the members of Animal Collective. <laughs> it's not a huge collective. Yeah, it's kind of a misleading name, right? Yeah. It would be a better name for... Um, What's that one where they all wear robes uh, and they look like a cult? They're a collective. Oh, uh, the polyphonic spree. Yeah, they're yeah, not we a just, spree. We just need to wear animal masks, like in The Shining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they'll be an animal collective. Yeah, we should start our own animal collective and sue the other one. Yeah, just based on uh, having more than two people. <laughs> yeah, and and animal masks would be like, look, we're a literal collective of people who at least present as animals. We also think with a hive mind. Yeah, like bees. So Jason, I can tell I can tell that you're wondering why I called you, and and it is this. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, the room. Are you familiar? The room that you're in? Yeah, it's my bedroom, and uh, I just don't know what to do with all my stuff. <laughs> I want you to Marie Kondo it for me. Um, all right, Jason, I'm holding an object. Tell me if it brings you joy. <laughs> Uh, no, the room, the f- the feature film. It's a feature film from oh, the, know, 10, 15 uh, years ago by by Tommy Wiseau. By Tommy Wiseau. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The room. I am familiar with the room. Are you um, okay? This is a brief. There's a there's a kids in the hall sketch where uh, Kevin McDonald is trying to do a list of things and he gets like kidnapped, uh, but he doesn't realize he's being kidnapped. Are you familiar with that? Oh yeah. I there, okay. It doesn't I think matter. I remember that There's sketch. a moment in that sketch where Dave Foley is holding a gun to him and yelling at him about how he has a gun and he should be doing what he said. And the voice that Dave Foley does is the exact same voice that uh, that Tommy Wiseau has just in life. Number two, pick up dry cleaning. Excuse me, can you drop me off of my dry cleaners? It's a paper dance for <laughs> Look, maybe you don't understand the situation that you are in. You are a hostage, and I am a man with a gun. So shut up. Where's my dry cleaners? Thank you. Um, <laughs> just just to, go check it out. Uh, it's s- s- strange. Um, it's the same. He's, they're playing the same character. Uh, so this 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 movie, Jason, The Room by Tommy Wiseau. Um, I don't get it. You don't get it. <laughs> no, and I need uh, I need your smarter brain. To help me understand. Um, well, the unnecessary uh, comparison of our brains aside, what what do you feel like you don't get? I guess we'll introduce this first. The The Room is a film made, um, you see, like you said, about 15 years ago. I don't have the date in front of me, but yeah. it was uh, made by a guy named Tommy Wiseau. Uh, who nobody really knows where he came from or where he got the money to make a feature film uh, on a on a you know reasonably sized budget for an independent feature film. Uh, but he wrote, produced, directed, and starred in this film called The Room. Um, and which... it's my impression that he had never made a film before, right? I think he's made one since is that true he's done some stuff since and we can talk about that in a minute i know he's done at least one uh ongoing web sitcom oh oh good for him that he's in um and i I think he's done some other stuff but this was definitely his first real work he was um, uh, I, I think he was an aspiring actor who okay. 
met another aspiring actor named Greg Sestero. Uh, they became close friends, and Tommy wrote this script for him and Greg to star in. And Tommy, as I said, produced and directed and starred in it. Uh, and it's a, a drama about a man whose uh, fiance cheats on him with his best friend and his life spirals out of control uh, and it ends tragically. Uh, that's sort I don't of the, know. The... I think I've seen it. I've seen it either once or twice, and I don't know that I could have told you any of those plot points. <laughs> well, that... that... <laughs> There, there are reasons for that, but that that is the general gist of the plot. Uh, I'm curious how much of the of the the film has an enthusiastic audience, and I'm curious how much of that audience cares about that plot. That's not my main question, but that's how much they care about it. I don't know, but as you said, it has an enthusiastic audience, and that is because uh, the, I, you know the reason we would be even talking about this film, I presume, is because it has this reputation as you know, quote the worst film ever made, unquote. Yeah. Um, or at least one of the worst films ever made. It's a film sure. that is so uh, bad that people line up to see it at midnight screenings uh, in these sort of event screenings, uh, a la the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with this film that uh, was made on a reasonably sized budget. It's a, a sort of a torrid uh, relationship drama Um it's it's made by a, you know a definitive independent auteur uh, just in terms of the level of control uh, he had over the production and it's been received as just this astonishingly bad film. Uh, so yeah. what don't you get about it or what what's your what, where are you how are you encountering the room? Let me ask you that. <laughs> all of that tracks to me. I agree with everything you've just said. Um, it is uh, it's bad. And it uh, is was clearly made on a decent budget, and it was clearly this dude's first outing. Um, what I don't understand is it plays. I live in Austin, Texas, and it plays here. I don't know, probably three times a year at different at different venues, and it is yeah, fifteen ish years old, right? And I think it's been playing several times a year for several years and every time it plays the same and not fully the same but like a large group of people go out and people are excited about introducing their friends to this film and uh and they they there are people i've met several people who are like oh man the room is playing i go every time that it plays um and first of all i don't i can't think of a single movie that i would go see no matter what every time it played you know there are a lot of movies i love but like i don't need to see anything three times a year uh, not for <laughs> not for twelve bucks a piece, um, but also this movie in particular is bad. It's bad. That's its primary defining characteristic. Um, and I can't think of any movie that I think is bad that I would be excited about going to see again. So yeah. So what you're confused about is it's sort of just hold over people. It's, it's swaying power. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. wondering what these people are getting out of it. Yeah. Um, Why go see a thing you don't like? Well, I think. Well, I, just, I, I think there's probably a difference actually between, or at least a, a slight difference between something being considered bad and not liking it. Uh, by which I mean, I think people are going largely to uh, marvel at how bad it is and to laugh at how bad it is and to have a good time with uh, people making fun of the film, essentially. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, so like would you would bring that, your friends to be like, ha, you didn't think you'd be this bored. Well, so I guess I don't think those people are bored, though, is the thing. So do you find the film boring? Yes. Yeah, I would say that that, for me, is is the primary qualification for what makes something bad uh, is whether or not I enjoy watching it. I don't know if that's an outside definition of bad, um, but for me, a bad film is a film that I'm not having a good time while I'm watching. And for me, this movie, uh, there are some aspects of it that are so, uh, so strangely conceived that they are fascinating, but I don't think that they come at me fast enough that I need to see it a second time. Are you, are you stepping on glass there? It, did I? 
<laughs> I don't know. There was there was a real crackle. Maybe it was from me. Oh, but, I don't know. Um, I do have. I'm so, sitting yeah, on my bed, I, I and think... there's a bunch of tools next to me. That might be what. It is. Sorry. But... <laughs> As pristine recording. Pristine recording uh, conditions is lying on a bed surrounded by tools yeah. and drywall and, you know, it's, it's, our studio is made of broken glass and <laughs> discarded links of chain. Exposed nails. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's a lot to, to dig into here. Um, but one thing I would say is that I, I do think that for most people... And I'm going to hesitate on whether or not I include myself in that. But for most people, mm-hmm. you can have a good time with a bad movie. That like a, having like a, a good time with a movie bad? doesn't necessarily make the movie good. I mean, uh-huh. I think that would be the whole premise of something like the show, How Did This Get Made? You know, the where um, they they watch movies that they consider to be terrible, but they have a good time dissecting them. Here's the thing about that show, though, is that they they clearly I mean, they're pulling movies, presumably from lists or recommendations, right? That they are told are bad films. And I've listened to several episodes um, and it seems like half the time they're like, oh, man, this movie was terrible. Let's debrief. Um, and I can understand that. That's like that sort of, what do they call it, like second degree fun, where like you go on a hike and your friend breaks his ankle and it's like an awful experience, but then uh, two months later you're like, oh man, we all made it through that hike, right? Like there's that. Right. Um, but it seems like half the time they're watching movies that are like, I don't know, Deep Blue Sea, and they're all like, ah, this movie was dumb but fun. Which to me means that wasn't a bad movie. Also, I would argue Deep Blue Sea, not a bad movie dumb not bad well yeah they, i mean and, and I, I don't want to get too much into analyzing how did this get made but sure the, there, there's a range of things that they would deal with there's a and there's probably a range of movies that uh people would consider that kind of a movie sure. um but I, I i don't think it's too strong to say that um for most people a bad movie is one that doesn't do what they assume its creators intended to try to do. That's an interesting... I've actually... I I teach at the college level sometimes, and I have had students tell me... I get into fights with people all the time because my, my tastes are, I don't know, somewhere on a spectrum. Um, and I get into fights all the time with students about, about the likes of uh, David Fincher, and I no, I've had at least two young men tell me that David Fincher is an exceptional filmmaker because his movies are what he wants them to be. Yeah. The, I mean, and that's an extreme of, of this kind of view, but I do think that that view uh, is at the core of the way a lot of people interact with movies is that the, this filmmaker has control over what they're doing and mm. what happens is effective uh, in the way that they intend it to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like technical accuracy as a measurement of film quality. For me, I saw it once and I was like, okay, I get it, you know, um, and which maybe just reflects my lack of interest in humanity to the degree that you do, uh, but, or, or I don't know, whatever it means is what it means. But, um, but largely for me, it's just a kind of poorly made, but technically fine drama film. And it's the kind of film that people will tell me that I need to watch, uh, because they know that I like to watch movies that are that are also fall into their sort of categorization of bad. I think the guts of what you were saying is that is that I'm functioning from a different concept of good or bad movie. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. So that, that that's where I think we need to to get at, and I, I need to stop being coy about it and start talking about it uh, with myself too, because I've seen this movie and. and have affection for this movie. Um, I I would argue that I don't like any bad movies, and a lot of other people tell me that I like a lot of movies that are bad. Um, and so I think for for a lot of people, they sort of lump this into the same generalized bad gory, <laughs> uh, and I and and tell me that I should like it. And I I just I think it's kind of boring uh, because I think it's a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, and one and I 
for for all of my my affection and interest in it, I don't think it's a good movie. Sure, um, <laughs> sure. But I, I do think that we're getting at, at a little bit of a divide here between how you perceive those categories and how most people perceive those categories, and I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> um, in that, I, I don't think that you know anything that I find entertaining or interesting is necessarily good. Um, I, I can find worthwhile aspects what of. Is, what do you think is bad, but you also like to watch it? Um, like dumb Hollywood movies. Like I really, I'll sit through Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. I've sat through it three or four times. I don't think it's a good movie. Oh no, you're right. That's a bad movie. Why do you watch that over and over again? <laughs> because I find it entertaining. Because it has enough things in it that entertain me. Literally, the only thing in that movie I care about is the scene where I think John Hawks throws leaves into a man's face. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, James Spader. Oh, it's James Spader throws leaves in a man's face. Uh, there's also that great introductory scene of those guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, in an attic or whatever. I, I, yeah, I was sitting in, in the movie theater, and all of a sudden, there's... I, I think it went, all of a sudden there's Tim Blake Nelson and I'm yeah. going, wait, Tim Blake Nelson's in this? And then it pans over to John Hawks and I go, wait a minute, John Hawks is in this? And then it yeah. ends on James Spader and his ridiculous mustache. And I think I audibly cheered. Oh, there's a cheered. cool weird indie movie hidden inside of this other movie. But I also like the more normal pleasures of that movie. Like, I enjoy all of Daniel Day-Lewis's speeches. That's interesting. Okay. Again, not because I think they're good, but because they just, it's, they fill a certain, you know, potato chippy desire. But Jason, you know, it's the don't difference you think between potato chips are good? I don't. <laughs> I think there's a difference between good food and food you like to snack on sometimes. Oh, see, that's, that's, I think, where we differ. And, I mean, David Fincher is exceptionally technically accurate. It's true. Sure. I agree. Uh, I think you and I feel similarly about David Fincher. Yeah, like Zodiac's fun, mostly. Yeah, I like Zodiac a lot. Um, and that's about it. But yeah. uh, my, that, that's a little bit unfair. But he... Of course. Yeah. We're not talking about him right now. We'll do another episode <laughs> on, on the Finch. <laughs> There is the issue of a filmmaker's control over what they do, but I, I think that that's a I think that's a slightly separate issue and and one that's actually worth digging into because I I find some merit in that idea, but in a more complex sure. uh, way than yeah, yeah, it's definitely more complicated uh, than like than like zero or like one I, did they control I think, the movie. I do think the mark of a good artist is the ability to. Uh, not necessarily fully control, uh, but to exert their will uh, within and around their materials in such a way as to, uh, you know, effectively express themselves. Yes. That doesn't mean having absolute control over how it comes out or how it's interpreted, but it does mean uh, being able to marshal a certain amount of energy and strength to, uh, to, push things in a certain way if that makes sense yeah i think um, there's a lot of i think any art but in particular filmmaking due to the complex nature of it i think involves a lot of sculpting chaos to try to move an impossible shape towards the direction that you want um yes but, but uh, I and, I, and i think yeah. actually the not not to go back to fincher but i, I think actually one of the things that, that happens when people fetishize fincher's control is that what fincher is doing is he's creating a space where he has less chaos to wrestle with yeah exactly and so he's able to exert more control but that's by design it comes it's at it, an it, expense yeah it, it's it's the it's the sort of super logical extension of somebody like uh, Alfred Hitchcock who wanted everything storyboarded yeah. and scripted to a T before even stepping onto set so that no decisions had to be made while filming. For sure. Um, and I don't, I, I think that's a certain kind of artistic power. I think it's a certain kind of strength, but it's not, uh, it's not the tippy top of the mountain. If that, yeah, if you course. know what I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, there, there's another 
level to get to that involves creating new challenges for yourself in terms of marshalling the chaos in front of you yeah. uh, and, and risking things getting out of control because you're trying to operate at the outer reaches of what your what your mind and what your collaborators' minds can achieve as opposed to creating a safe space in which you know that your mind can operate. Agreed. And just to just to use a little lasso power here, I think that part of <laughs> what is notable about the room in the Pantheon of of sort of uh, vanity features uh, that made by people who don't super know how to make a movie is that Tommy Wiseau is attempting to have that level, right? It's like all shot on weird sets and they have a rooftop that's clearly a green screen and there's, it's everything. He's trying to have that level of like Fincherian control where he's trying to build a space where nothing is chaos and everything is happening exactly as he needs it to. Um, but without that technical prowess or a background in, in how to tell a story using cinema. Well, and that what makes Tommy was so interesting to me, um, because I'm, I'm somebody who's watched the room a number of times, uh, and we'll probably watch it again. Although my, my interest has waned in recent years. Um, what makes him interesting to me is that he does try to exert that level of control. Uh, but for him, what needs to be the chaos he's facing is not the chaos of the set. The chaos he's facing is internal. Yes. And no matter how much technical control he's able to marshal and he marshals quite a bit. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the, they actually, I think in the making of the film had a real rooftop and then he demanded a green screen. Um, yeah. And there's the, the making of the film is, is really phenomenal to, to read about. Um, but yeah, the, the chaos he's trying to conquer is all inside and he can't out technical that, uh, and, and the things that I respond to in the room, uh, and I don't know that these are the same things that the enthusiastic audiences respond to. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the things that I respond to in the room are, are the uh, open gaping holes into his psyche <laughs> that litter that film because he can't stop it. Yes. He can't control it. Um, so it you can see what he's trying to do and you can see how he's failing to do that on one level. And I think that's what people generally respond to is just, you know, how weird and funny things come out, how awkward some scenes are. His interpretation of interpersonal dialogue. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I, I also, I will admit to finding very amusing. Um, and, and there are certain scenes that I'll have watched a number of times just to listen to what it is. He thinks people sound like, um, but again, I don't, to me, it's not exactly that, oh, this is so stupid. It's, oh, here's this person whose brain works like this. Yeah. And I don't want my brain to work like that. I don't think that it's necessarily a valuable way for a brain to work, but it's so different from anything else I can find anywhere else that I, I will go back to the film to, to look at it and say, what is he thinking? Sure. You're, you're viewing it as an ethnographic portrait of one, of, of a community of one man uh, <laughs> who has a particular, I, nearly alien uh, idea of how people exist. Yeah, it, it's an idea, and, and it's, it's also a weirdly uh, cultural phenomenon to me, because he, a lot of his ideas of how people exist are ideas that he's received through media and through films and plays, um, but just the way he's watched them or the the way he's um, absorbed different uh, forms of melodrama and drama and emotional tensions, um, I think reveal not only his particular... Uh, strangeness, but also reveal a certain way those things are are emphasized in movies. 
um, that I, I put it this way. I don't think he's receiving everything entirely wrong. Sure, sure. Like um, the version that he sees of American football is is a distillation of American football as portrayed in American sitcoms, which is yeah. probably the only way he's consumed it. Yeah, or or his understanding of you know male female romantic relationships is twisted and upsetting but mm-hmm. also not that distant from how it's portrayed in movies and soap operas and sure. comedies and you know any any number of things so that you know the it's it's an, I don't want to turn this into more than it is but there is some way that this you know I I treat Tommy almost like an outsider artist Absolutely, and yeah. there, there's some way in which his outsider status and the the particular ways that he's responding not to what we all understand our films to mean, but to the actual surfaces of them, and then regurgitating those surfaces in this demented form that can actually make us recognize what's so weird about them to begin with. Yeah, I know. I think that's nice. Looking at it as sort of a folksy, grotesque mirror of the media he's been ingesting, which is the same media that we're all ingesting. Um, just, just kind of showing us what it is he sees us as. I'm talking about it like he's a literal alien, which isn't what I mean to do, but it's just how it came out. Um, well, it's hard but not he to. Is, he's certainly not. <laughs> and he now cultivates that. I'm putting that in quotes. Persona. I don't mean like, yeah, yeah. He, yeah he I is, mean, he, he may have at one point wanted to be seen differently, but... Uh, after the room got the reception that it did, mm-hmm. uh, I think after an initial disappointment with that, he sort of leaned into it and started playing the character of Tommy Wiseau even oh, more sure. so than he had already been living it. I'm sure. Which is, I mean, it's sort of, it's the same, it's like the Werner Herzog move, right? It's like, you're like, oh, I am an artist, but I'm also a character and I need to be this character. It is what is going to propel me through life. Oh yeah, I mean a, a lot of a lot of artists have done that too. You know, yeah. it's the uh, Lou Reed, it's sure. uh, David Bowie, it's Orson Welles, yeah, um, all the greats. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta you gotta um, make yourself a legend if you're going to be a legend, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people, consciously or unconsciously, absorb their criteria for what a good movie is mm-hmm. from the sort of general culture's understanding of what a good movie is supposed to be. Sure. So I, Lincoln, I again, can serve as a perfect example. Lincoln hits all the beats of a good movie. Uh-huh. You know, that that's a, a film that people can point to and nominate for Oscars and say, this is a good movie. And you're not going to find a lot of regular people to say, oh, no, it was a bad movie. They might say they didn't like it, but they're not going to say it was a bad movie because it is sort of deemed good. And it, it, it obviously does the thing that it wants to do when it, it unfolds the way that a good movie is supposed to unfold. Okay. I feel like this is making me excited for our Oscar season episode where we get to talk about how I think Oscar movies are necessarily bad and nobody likes them. Um... Where you and I differ from those people is that um, we have a a more uh, direct and experience based opinion about what's good, and I don't mean to that 
to sound as self-aggrandizing as it does. We we also obviously have absorbed uh, different criteria and categories sure. and and opinions from other people. There's no other way to live life. Uh, we're not perfectly <laughs> unique snowflakes. Uh, but I, I do think that you and I tend towards a philosophy of film going and, and a philosophy of life in general that tries to let... It, it it tries to be generous and open to what is happening in front of us and allow the thing that's happening to tell us what it wants to do, tell us what it's interested in, and sort of take it in in that way. And one of the things we're looking for is for a film to be strange and sure. different and go somewhere that films don't normally go. Um, in a way that I think many people would maybe say is bad, but there, there's a fine line between bad and the avant-garde. I'm not the first to point that out. Yeah, of course. Um, so the, you know, it was it Marshall McLuhan maybe said like all new systems of knowledge look like chaos at first. <laughs> like if you, if you're actually doing something new, it's not going to hit the, it's not going to satisfy the beats that you're expecting from a work because it's doing something else. And I think you and I both believe that you have to be uh, open in a certain way in order to catch those moments when they happen. Sure. Because otherwise they, you just, you paper over them. I mean, artistic experiences are not the overwhelmingly strong uh, muscular things that people talk about them as being, I think they're incredibly right, fragile. And yeah. if you're not paying attention to them, you just stamp them out in your mind before they even get a chance to express themselves. Absolutely. And there's sort of a related, I think, I think a related phenomenon is I've, I have in the past found cheese in my refrigerator and tasted it and, and thought to myself, I don't know if this is supposed to taste like this and then thrown it away. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But if I go to a restaurant and they give me a piece of cheese and I bite it and I think, oh, this tastes strange. Uh, but I know that it was served to me by professionals and that they've curated it and that it's supposed to taste like that. So then I can take the minute to be like, oh, can I appreciate this taste, even though it's not what I would expect a cheese to taste like? Um but with a film, I know, you know, there's no danger of poisoning, uh, or very little at least. So I know that I can go into it and just assume that someone has curated that experience for me, and whatever it is is what it is supposed to be. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that that's what art is in many ways for, is creating a space where you don't have to worry about dying. Yeah. So things can happen that normally would be absolutely terrible or verboten or, you know, I I think it's important to clamp down on things in real life that might be, you know, too far outside of the norm because too far outside of the norm very often can lead to deadly situations. But in a work of art, the whole point is that you've created a space where you can't get hurt. So, So to then go into a movie and be like, I understand the cultural concept of, the shape of a good movie and i i will be upset if this doesn't conform to that exactly feels like a a failure on the part of the audience (laughs) to me not to damn my fellow film viewers i love you all very much and i'm glad you're out there um well you know i'm I'm glad we're just cutting right into the into the elitism and arrogance in the first episode (laughs) that we're recording but i i do think that um it is inside. I don't want to say it's a failure so much as I want to say that they're simply using movies differently than we are. Sure. What I mean is that most people, when they go into entertainment, and again, this sounds terribly elitist and arrogant, but I think it's probably true. Um, they are not interested in the potential of a new experience. Uh, and that is because even though within a work of art you can't get physically hurt, mm-hmm. uh, there are mental and emotional dangers that oh, sure. come with being out on that edge. Um, what most people are looking for from a film is for something to satisfy preconceived desires. I mean, it's part of the reason why studios put all the big, you know, 
big event moments in their trailers because their studies have shown over and over again that what people want to do is they want to watch the trailer and then they want to go watch the movie to get to the parts that they saw in the trailer. Is that really a thing that studies say? Yeah. I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, studio marketing has found that, that people get excited to see the part that they saw in the trailer. That's wild. That feels so opposite what I want that I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. I mean, and it's hard to talk about it without sounding really judgmental. And I suppose on some level, I can't help but be judgmental, uh, except that I don't necessarily think that they, I don't think you owe it to anybody but yourself to be open to artistic experiences. Sure. And I think ultimately the only person you're really hurting is yourself. We could make an argument that in a capitalist society, you're hurting the artist and other people who want to be open to these experiences because you're not supporting things financially. But I I don't, I don't have the time to actually do a full, like, you know, political economy study of, of whether or not that bears out. But my gut says that it doesn't, that there are much larger structural issues in the way other than individual people's entertainment choices. Sure. Um, but I, I don't think you owe it to anybody but yourself to be open to these things. I don't think you're hurting anybody but yourself when you close down to them. And so I'm not really judging people. Right. And it's, for, not, it's not even a negative judgment either. It's just a different way of consuming. And I think that I think the like us versus them in this scenario, the like us is a huge group of people. Right. It's like anyone who's who would call themselves a cinephile probably is like on the us side. Uh, but well, that's where I would, <laughs> oh, am I wrong? That's, I don't... that's where, well, no, that's just where I get really mean. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, more often than not, uh, this is just to alienate anybody who could possibly like this podcast. More <laughs> often than not, anyone's listening, get yeah, out of here. More often than not, self-proclaimed cinephiles have uh, even more intricately structured preconceived desires than general audiences do. Uh, I, I think general audiences can sometimes be taken su- taken by surprise by something that uh, meets certain expectations but subverts others, whereas. You know, cinephiles, there's there's nothing so dangerous as somebody who thinks they're really smart. Uh, sure. I, I, you know, the the Fincher fanboys are cinephiles, right? I guess. I don't know. I don't know who's a cinephile. You know, now that I should really be hitting that hard on Fincher, but... Yeah. <laughs> if you're a Fincher fan, you might want to unsubscribe. <laughs> anyway, but but sorry, anyway, I interrupted I think, you. You were trying to, to posit a, something well, about think, us versus them. I think them. The, general, the general audience of which we all communally speak... It's just it's is like the go to movies once or twice a month crowd who are genuinely just interested in looking at colored lights for three hours, you know, and and I still don't understand why you would want to see all of the good bits in a trailer before you go see the movie. It seems fun to me to have something happen that you don't know is going to happen. Um, but well, no, they, they, there has to be some things you don't know are going to happen. Like that, <laughs> sure, that's sure. that's the balance, right? It's yeah. it's the you you have to have some kind of you know, it there has to be some little difference, but it can't be that big a difference. Right, right, right. Um, so I can I can sort of see that, and that and that for those people, what they're looking for is three hours with air conditioning and popcorn, right? So like for them, I could see not. You don't. Mm, what they're looking for is something dependable, right? They want to like go sit in a space and not have to process anything for a couple of hours. So yeah, or process things in very particular ways. Like I, sure. I you know, I, I think air conditioning and popcorn, but also you know, actors that they like doing the things that they like them doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to look at you know, uh, emotional beats that they enjoy feeling. Yeah. Um, and you know, it, it, I'm, I'm not trying to say that everything is is super cookie cutter. Like it takes a certain ingeniousness of craft to devise a film that will deliver the same emotional beats that films have been delivering since sure. 1918. Yeah, um, but in like a new enough way that people feel like they got it fresh this time Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Um, like that, that takes some craft to do, but it is what people are looking for. They're looking for the same emotional beats that they've gotten before. They're like, oh, I want to go feel that again. I want to go to a romantic comedy because I want to get some laughs in and then I want to feel that, you know, romantic feeling again. 
Um, And And again, when I say I want to watch Lincoln, that's what I'm going for. I want to get the charge of watching Daniel Day-Lewis roar about and overact and chew the scenery and the highly uh, verbal screenplay by the Angels in America's guy whose name I'm blanking on right now. Um, The writer that Jason is thinking of is Tony Kushner. You know, it, it's it's there. There are these digestible, preconceived pleasures that sure. you know. You know that if I if you go in and you know order that McDonald's cheeseburger, it's going to be a McDonald's cheeseburger. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you want today, so you're going to get yeah, that, right? And I think that there's a. I think there's a. Like, I'm going to say a good market for that. I don't mean like you can sell it. I mean like I think there's a good reason that that exists. Um, and I like yeah, I'll I'll go watch every single summer blockbuster starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson, which at this point is every single summer blockbuster. Um, <laughs> and two thirds of the time, I'll be like, that was a bad movie, but I'm sure glad I got to watch Dwayne the Rock Johnson smirk and be sweaty for ninety minutes. Um, and that's enough sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that. Uh I I don't want to speak for you. I certainly can fall into the trap of of believing that I'm you know uh, a, a special little boy who who's extra <laughs> self aware of those desires. And ultimately, I think I am more self aware about them than uh, Wait, the a certain segment of people. Rock Johnson be sweaty. I think everybody knows <laughs> they have that but, desire. Well, but but I, I, what I was going to say is that I, I think people tend to actually be a little bit more knowing about the baseness of their film going desires than maybe oh, they're sure. getting credit for. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think the, yeah, I think everyone who's going to watch this new second remake Jumanji movie knows exactly why they're going to see it and they know what they're going to get from it. And they're going to get that from it. I don't think anyone is going to that movie being like, I am going to watch the second remake sequel of Jumanji because I love cinema. We've had a conversation before, probably eight, about... Because I think we both, when we were young men, young men who knew each other, I think, uh, went through a similar experience. Or maybe you did this before I met you, I don't know. um, Of watching films and getting mad about things and and dismissing them to, to... And then maturing to the point where where we realized, oh, if I'm mad about something, that means it's doing something. Um, I just need to go in again and watch it on its own terms. And that's still a thing that happens to me sometimes. I think a movie is going to do something for me or with me or to me. And I go in and it doesn't do what I expect and I and it makes me grumpy. Uh, but but now I'm mature enough that I, that I know that that just means it was it, it wasn't doing nothing, right? It was doing something, certainly. And I my expectations were, were what was incorrect and I just need to go in and give it another swing, but but give it the leeway to do whatever it is that it wants to do. Yeah, and I, I think more often than not, when you do go back and revisit something that made you angry, you turn out to have been justified. Uh, <laughs> at least <laughs> when um, I don't know, I'm when you've been doing this as long as we have, uh, um, you know, it, it's not, I don't think it's common or regular that I, I go back and look at something that pissed me off and I think, oh, I was just in the wrong frame of mind. Usually I go back and I try to be open to it and I go, nope, this is a piece of shit. But <laughs> I do think that it happens enough mm-hmm. that you have to keep doing it. Yeah. You have to keep keeping that in mind. I mean, the, I get the most mad at movies when I can fully, when I, I feel like I can fully see how they were made, um, what they're doing, and they don't do enough, or they they create sure. an opportunity to do something interesting and then squander it, and with it, squander my time. Sure. Um, like, I do think you can make value judgments about things being good and bad. Well, uh, no, I agree. I guess I'm thinking of... I mean, have you ever... You've showed 
things to students that they got mad about, right? Like, have you ever, I don't know, do you ever make a, watch, uh, make a group of kids watch Serene Velocity? <laughs> um, I haven't had the chance to watch, make them watch that yet, but oh, I, I've definitely, I mean, I've, I've made them watch Hollis Frampton films, I've made them watch sure. Ballet Mechanique. Sure. And right, I'm sure you've the, made watch, a bunch of kids watch Hollis Frampton's Hallelujah, right? You've definitely done that. Uh, <laughs> and um, oh, the, the most memorable situation actually was I made a, a group of undergrad film students uh, and it, <laughs> um, it wasn't an avant-garde film it wasn't uh, anything that far off it was David Cronenberg's Videodrome uh, and the the collective wail of anguish from that group of 18 19 20 year olds astounded me because I thought I was giving them a fun night at the movies. For sure. And they thought I was torturing them on purpose. So. We'll see now that. But your I point. That's an example, right? It's like they went into that. I don't know what they were expecting in that screening, but they were expecting something without handguns and chest vaginas. And, and they got those and they didn't know how to process it, right? Because they weren't prepared to. Um, and they got mad. And, like, they might just live mad at that movie forever, or maybe someday they'll be like, well, now that I know what that movie is trying to do to me, I'll revisit it. And maybe they'll revisit it and be like, oh, actually, this movie's genius. Or maybe just something sticks in their mind and they can't shake it, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, the, some, <laughs> that, like the chest vagina never goes away completely. <laughs> and even if they never revisit the film, they might in some moment think, well, I guess it was doing something. But sure. I, I, I take what you mean, yeah. yeah. But I do I do agree there are definitely examples of movies that are just doing a bad job of being a movie and make you angry on that level. That's just not what I originally intended to, to say. Um, or movies that do a good job at doing something that I think they shouldn't do. Like, I'm not above oh, sure. having that opinion. <laughs> sure, of course. Can we, I don't know, this might be too, uh, too momentary and topical, but at the, at the time we're recording this, you can cut this out if you want later. Um, they, they released two or three days ago, the trailer for the film version of cats. Have you watched the trailer, Jason? I've, I have watched it. That's all I need. Uh, so I saw the internet was collectively mad at this trailer everyone was like this movie is going to be terrible and then a bunch of other people were like this movie looks great i don't know what you're talking about um so i watched the trailer and i was like oh i agree with the former camp this movie looks unwatchable to me um and then i read some of the conversations people were having and all of the people who were saying it's it doesn't look bad are defending it on the same sort of grounds that you defend the musical cats which i understand why some people hate cats and some people like cats i think cats is fine i don't care that much i've seen it uh it's okay it's like a bunch of cat people singing songs who cares um sorry anyone who cares a lot uh i think it's fine um (laughs) uh, uh, so that now i don't know now i'm in this strange zone where for me i watched the trailer and i was like oh this film looks unwatchable in the same way that alita battle angel (laughs) was unwatchable where i just literally can't look at the faces of any of these people because they were assembled with computers poorly. Um, and I thought that that's what everyone was reacting to, but now I'm not sure because it seems like some people are just reacting to the idea of them being small people with furry bodies, uh, which seems fine to me. And now I'm fully lost in culture's assessment of this musical because it seems like most of the critiques that I'm reading have nothing to do with the thing that seems awful about it to me. I mean, I, I think most of the people that I saw reacting to it were just reacting to the uh, uncanniness of the computer-generated cat makeup. Good. That's Um, the terrible part. Because it's like they look like the people do in the musical, except done with computers instead of just makeup, and it and their faces are drifting around on their heads. It's awful. Oh, yeah. no. It, to me, it's a completely baffling decision. Now, in the same vein, uh, this conversation that we're having, I could see if it was slight, like just 20 degrees to the right, 
in terms of intention and execution, I would be defending it as a really bizarre, upsetting sure. choice. If they were trying, uh, but to make I don't think that's what it can. is. No, yeah. if it looked like um, if it looked like the Wachowskis uh, Speed Racer version of those cats, I, I would be back on its side. The yeah, the Speed Racer by I, uh, I believe they call themselves now the the Starship Wachowski or Starship Wachowski. Really? That's yeah. Which Super I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, because I, I think they, obviously they're no longer the Wachowski brothers. Sure. But I, I think that they're, uh, they're specifically a starship now. Well, I, I, I think that, that the choices of one or both of them have, have become, or the, the not choices, the identities of one or both of them have become, uh, so fluid or non-binary that, um, as a collective, they've they've decided to call themselves Starship, which I I just find absolutely delightful and wonderful. Yeah, yeah that's really nice. Um, but yeah, speed, the the Starship Wachowski's Speed Racer, uh, yeah, exactly, is is trying to create some sort of uh, uncanny yeah. relationship to the image, whereas I think Cats is trying to create a very direct, visceral yeah. pop relationship to the image, and is. Um, they just, that, that is a, made a situation a of absolutely failing at what they are obviously trying to do. Yeah, they wanted it to look like the suits and makeup from the play, but somehow more cat-like or something. Um, somehow more real in a way that they thought they could achieve more realness digitally than they could with practical applications, which is always a mistake. It's a real sense of technological coulda yeah. and not so much shoulda. Yeah, yeah. Standing on the shoulders um, I mean, of the giants. I imagine, <laughs> I imagine the actors are happy to not have to be in oh, makeup for sure. for all sure. day, every day. But um, I still wish I would watch that if it looked like uh, like Ben Vereen and Zubily Zoo. That's my ideal version of the Cats movie. Oh God, talk about uncanny and terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> I, the the gamut of feelings I have about Zubily Zoo probably deserve <laughs> their own episode. We should definitely uh, do a but Zubily that, Zoo episode. That that show haunts my darkest inner oh, yeah. self. Uh, there, there's yeah, it's like forever lurking I mean, somewhere in the back of my of my mind. Yeah, I, I'm I'm somewhat convinced that that show had a, a a deep and lasting effect on just about every form of social existence and identity that oh. our generation has somewhere in I, there. Our relationship to race sexuality animals yes. art yes space <laughs> cloth yeah uh, woodworking i know i found that show deeply terrifying and erotic as a as an eight-year-old so yeah that's both correct i think well that seems a reasonable place to call an end to our inaugural episode yeah i think we um, solved the room and i <laughs> i feel better about it now thank you well jim i sure i'm glad you called yeah man thank you for picking up yeah anytime man I'll uh I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, bud. Click. <laughs> that was me hanging up. The Zulu clock is telling me it's time for us to go. But before we do this something, I want you all to know. The road that leads to Zubli Zoo is always there inside of you, no matter where you are. If you just believe you're never far from Zoobly Zoo, Zoobly Zoo, magic and wonder are waiting for you. So come on with us now and discover the wonder of you. Welcome to Zoobly Zoo. Synesthesia is produced by Iguana Donald Studios and distributed by Split Tooth Media. Featuring music by The Cocktails, courtesy of Tideship Records. Theme music by Soft Healer. Synesthesia is recorded live before a studio audience on an artificial moon orbiting Jupiter. Synesthesia is made possible by generous donations of blood plasma by listeners like you, but not you. Don't worry. We aren't waiting outside to jump you and steal your blood, 
your precious blood, the elixir of youth, nectar of the gods, we are gods, we are your gods, repent. The chest vagina never goes away completely. <laughs> <laughs> she-